0: First, Church, Charlotte. All right, so tonight I have a treat for you. Someone last week said... Maybe we should do another character study. So tonight we are doing another character study, and I'm hoping that I can get through it in just one session. If not, we'll we'll finish it next week. But um, we're going to take a look at one of my all time favorite characters outside of Jesus Christ, of course, in the scripture. And you'll find out here in a little while uh, as soon as I tell you my text. So my text is taken from First Samuel, chapter number one, verses 14 through 20. This is during the period of the judges, First Samuel chapter number 1, verses 14 through 20. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come together as a body, as a group of believers uh, of one mind and one heart, trying to study your word, trying to gain knowledge and understanding from your, your word. I pray for an illumination upon this word tonight. I pray for wisdom. I pray for a word of knowledge. I pray for a word of understanding. I pray, God, that you speak through me so that I may, Lord God, speak to your people and they may be edified. We thank you for this opportunity and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Let everybody say amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you. you. Amen. Amen. And Eli said to her, beginning at verse 14 in 1 Samuel chapter number one, and Eli said to her, I know brother... uh, um, brother, brother gear Um, I don't know if you're doing the, the, the recording tonight. Um, but if I, if I am not finished with this tonight, we'll do it. We'll finish up next week. Okay. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord. I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Verse 17 Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Verse 18. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate. And I like this, this, this verse, the, when, it when it says, and the woman went away and ate, the next part of that verse says, and her face was no longer sad, which mean her face was sad before, right? Verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, I guess in the biblical sense. And the Lord remembered her in this way, remembered her prayer. Verse 20, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. I have asked for him from the Lord. That's the meaning of the name Samuel. And so my subject tonight is not too young to minister. Not too young to minister. So our, our, our character tonight that we're going to be studying is, as you have heard, is my one of my faves, as they say, uh, Samuel. Prophet Judge, general, priest, all around ninja in the Bible. One of my favorite guys that I love to study. Not too young to minister. Now, Samuel is a figure that looms large in the Old Testament. He plays an outsized role, uh, and you'll you'll hear why in a minute. He plays a key role in the transition of the period of the judges that they're in right now. So you remember some of the judges, right? Like Gideon and Samson and Deborah and Jephthah and others, right? Sa- um, Samuel was the last judge of Israel, and 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 he kind of uh, supervised the transition of Israel's leadership from the period of the judges to that of their kingdom when they started to have kings, and of course the first king that Samuel anointed was King Saul Samuel also presided over the monarchy transition from King Saul to the celebrated monarchy of King David Samuel is a well-respected prophet in Judaism in Christianity and interestingly enough also in Islam In addition to his role in the Hebrew scriptures, Samuel is mentioned in Jewish rabbinical literature quite prominently. Also in the Christian New Testament and in the second chapter of the Quran. He's also respectfully treated in the fifth through seventh books of antiquities of the Jews written by the celebrated Jewish scholar Josephus in the first century. He is first called the seer in 1 Samuel chapter 9 verse 9 obviously because of his gift to see and understand future events the words prophet and seer are synonyms and are used almost indistinguishably in the old testament they are they're synonymously used or uh, replaced with one from the other in fact even in the same uh, chapters they will be used interchangeably like the book of ruth 1st and 2nd Samuel begins with the story of an ordinary Israeli family during the period of the judges, as I said, Uh, through one woman's grief and faith, a child is born who will be instrumental in leading Israel through its next phase of history, as well as the establishment of the celebrated uh, Davidic monarchy into this time and place Samuel was born at around 1070 BC or BCE for some of you in a place called Ramah-Zophim or Ramah for short he died in 1012 BC before Christ or before the Christian era at Ramah in Benjamin so surprisingly to me i learned that Samuel lived only 58 years That was surprising to me. That's a young life for such a celebrated uh, prophet, priest, and judge, and military leader of Israel. By now, do you know Samuel's mother was Hannah and her father was Elkanah? Elkanah's genealogy is interesting. He He is found in the pedigree of one of the high priestly families called the Kohites. Kohites or Kohathites, we, we read about this in 1st Chronicles 3 to 15, 1st Chronicles 6 verses 3 to 15 is where we found uh, where we find rather Elkanah's genealogy. He's also found to be in the lineage. Of Ezra the scribe who apparently was his grandson let me tell you about Ezra uh, Ezra is unique because uh, if you remember in in, in the judges that the Bible talked about uh, Nehemiah rebuilding the wall You remember that story uh, they, they had uh, the trowel in one hand and a sword in the other hand right rebuilding the wall right well while Nehemiah while Nehemiah was rebuilding the wall Ezra was rebuilding the people. The Bible says that Ezra, because he was short, he might have been short. The Bible says that Ezra stood on a box. And from there, he taught the word of God. And and the people of Israel were were lifted up and they grew because of Ezra's teaching. So so here we are. uh, Samuel being found in that in that demonstrated or celebrated genealogy. Also, according to the genealogical tables and chronicles, Elkanah was a Levite, a fact that is not mentioned in the book of Samuel. The fact that it's not mentioned and that he was of the tribe of Levi, which as you know, they are the the keepers of the house of God. They were the, the priests that, that ministered, right? The Levitical priesthood. The fact that it's not highlighted is interesting because a Levite in this time is a big deal and it is noteworthy, and you would have thought that it would have been mentioned. So according to first Samuel chapter number one, verse two, Elkanah had two wives. Hannah and Penina, Hannah and Penina, maybe, maybe because the Bible did say that he stood on a box, you know, to preach and to teach. So it's always been in my mind that that he might have been vertically challenged. So so Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Penina. Penina had several children, but Hannah was barren. She couldn't have any children. Nevertheless, the Bible says that Elkanah favored Hannah. But that created jealousy in Penina. And and Penina reproached Hannah. She teased her for her lack of children, causing Hannah much headache and much embarrassment and, and consternation and stress. It's important to know that a married woman without children in this day and age was referred to as barren. Barren was a, oh goodness, it was almost a curse word, meaning empty. And it was typically or usually uh, shameful, a shame. This is the reason why she went to the temple to pray for a child. The Bible says that Elkanah was a devout man and would periodically take his whole family on pilgrimage to the holy site in Shiloh, and on this one occasion, Hannah went to the sanctuary and prayed fervently for a child. Through many tears, she vowed that if the Lord were to grant her a child, she would dedicate him back to the Lord for the whole of his life as a Nazarite, which by the way, is a vow of purity and dedication to the Lord. There were other Nazarites in the Bible. Samson was a Nazarite. Elijah was a Nazarite. And of course, Jesus also took the Nazarite vow. Uh, Let me explain a little bit about that. So if you take the Nazarite vow, you would make three basic uh, promises or the vow would contain three basic elements. Number one, you must abstain from wine and all products of the vine, including grapes and vinegar. You could eat none of that, drink any of that. You would want to separate yourself from normal social occasions and the lure of temporary luxury and excess. Um, This abstention from fermented drink signified the Nazarite's acceptance of a life of perpetual service as opposed to a life of ease. We find this in Jeremiah 35, verse five through eight. Mm -hmm. The second uh, element of the Nazarite vow is one of purity and holiness to separate oneself from the corruption of anything that was dead or anything that was seen as corruptible. And in in the Bible, some sickness and disease uh, were often viewed as a result of sin. And so they were included in this list of items that a a person who took the Nazarite vow was not allowed to go near. Right. Uh, Most prominent was that of leprosy. By the way, so was menstruation, just so that I I throw that in, Um, because uh, menstruation um, was viewed as the the woman was viewed as unclean. And in fact, some Orthodox communities still practice this today, obviously out of ignorance, which is why the Orthodox Jew who practices strict Orthodoxy will not shake the hand of a woman that is not his wife or any woman of menstruating age, you will find that an observant Orthodox Jew would not shake a woman's hand. If you know any, you will know what I'm talking about. The third element of this Nazarite vow is referred to as the crown of royal priesthood, not cutting one's hair. The crown on one's head becomes a visible sign of the Nazarite's sworn oath, and consecration to God. Uh, And it is viewed as the source of his strength. You will remember the story of Samson, of course. Once his hair was cut off, his strength would leave him. But it was mostly because of disobedience. That's another Bible study. So the uncut hair showed an unrestrained commitment to one's vow, only allowing divine power to act in him and God's promises to strengthen and fulfill it. Samson, of course, was mentioned in Judges chapter number 13, verse 5 through 7, chapter number 14, verses 16 and 17. And oh, by the way, as a sidebar, uh, the tradition of the Nazarite vow has had a significant influence on the Rastafari religion in Jamaica. Um, And elements of the vow have been adopted as part of their religion. In describing the obligations of their religion the rastafari makes reference to the nazarite vow taken by samson of course the long uncut hair eventually grows into dreads from which we get the modern uh, trend or the term of dreadlocks uh, the swearing of a 30-day or even a lifetime Nazarite vow allowed a man to serve God without being uh, from the original bloodline of the high priest or Aaron. Aaron was, as you know, or as you might remember, is Moses's brother, the first high priest. And, and that would lead them to ministerial service. Um, but you could be... Um, a Nazirite and take a Nazirite vow without being uh, in the lineage of Aaron um, and, and not of officially a part of the Levitical priesthood. All right. So uh, I feel like the more information I give you with regards to all of these elements gives you a fuller picture um, of what's happening here. For example, the requirements of the Nazarite are, in fact, very similar to that of the Levitical priesthood, what the priests take according to the oral law, which is referred to as the Mishnah. I'm looking on my library now because I happen to have a copy of the oral law. The Nazarite was to live a life of strict outward ritual purity that signified an inner purity of the heart. Leviticus 21 verses 1 and 2 tells us this, and also verse 10 and 11. So we know that as a boy, Samuel received his first prophetic word from the Lord, in which big, big things were going to happen. Little boy, big prophecy, right? God told little, little little Samuel that he was going to destroy the house of Eli. First Samuel 1 to 3. So I want to read that passage where the Lord calls Samuel into ministry for the first time and many scholars believe he was about six, anywhere from six to 12 years old uh, during his time of calling. They don't know exactly. In First Samuel chapter number three, the Bible says, quote, now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. This phrase means that Samuel did all the work that anyone given over to the service of the temple would typically do. Some of his jobs were menial, and some of them are important. His jobs would range from keeping the temple clean, but being in service and support to the priest Eli, like running errands, taking care of passing, and giving messages, were also important. He probably would also be trained in the rituals of the temple, lighting the candlesticks, for example, etc. The Bible goes on to say in chapter 3 that, Quote, the word of the Lord was rare in those days, rare in those days, and that there was no open vision. And this phrase literally means that the giving of the prophetic word was not yet firmly established. In other words, it did not happen regularly where prophecy was used to establish a formal decree from God to his people. Although prophecy was an essential condition of the spiritual life of Israel, yet it had not been made known, and many were not called to be prophets as of yet as an established fact. So this gift of prophecy upon this young brother, this young guy, was significant. The Bible says it was not withheld, but neither had it been prematurely granted as a settled ordinance to individuals. There are two words given Um, to describe the prophetic vision of the day. One was Hezan in the Hebrew, which refers to such visions as revealed to a person who would fall into a trance and would speak prophetically in a state of ecstasy. And then the other was Marek, M-A-R-E-K, is a vision that someone would see with their natural eye. The Bible says at that time, Eli, coincidentally, Eli's eyesight had begun to fail him so that he could not see very well. And the historian Josephus put Samuel somewhere, as I said, between the ages of six and nine. By this time, he would be attending to Eli's every need because Eli was going blind and couldn't see very well to negotiate and get around the temple. In verse three of chapter three, the Bible says that quote, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. So it was, it wasn't, it wasn't late in the evening. So we know that Samuel may have been lounging in in his room. He, pro- he probably was not. The Bible says he was laying down in the temple of the Lord where the Ark of God was. But we know that it wasn't in the Holy of Holies. We can assume that he wasn't in the Holy of Holies uh, because no one slept in there. The only thing that was in there was the Ark of the Covenant uh, with the, the, the cherubs overhand um, and uh, the mercy seat on top of the Ark and, and candlesticks. Samuel was most likely sleeping in one of the temple rooms designated for visiting priests for assistance um, and, and, and helpers who routinely would help around the temple. So the Lord then called Samuel and he said, Samuel. I, I, when I read this to my, my children when they were young, uh, we would have great fun with this. I would, I would animate and I would dramatize it and, and we would have great fun of it. But this is a great story, by the way, to read to children. If you have children, uh, crack open 1 Samuel and read this story to your children. It would enthrall them and, and be sure to, to do like I did and animate it and dramatize it and make it fun. Samuel says, here I am. The Bible says Then he ran to Eli and says, here I am for you called me. But Eli said, I, I, I didn't call you, uh, go lie down again. The Bible says, so he went and lie down. Verse six, and the Lord called Samuel again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But Samuel said, I, I did not call you my son go lie down again. Now, Samuel did not know, the Bible says, did not know the Lord yet. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Chapter seven, verse eight says, and the Lord called Samuel again the third time, Samuel, and he arose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. Then Eli perceived, Eli the priest, perceived that the Lord was calling the boy to ministry. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down again. And if he calls you again, you shall say, quote, speak Lord for your servant hears. So Samuel went down and lay in his place. And and verse 10 is curious because it says, and the Lord came and stood. I don't know if that's what your Bible says, but that's what it says in my Bible. And the Lord came and stood. I'm assuming stood above his bed or stand by his bed, calling as he did at other times. Samuel, Samuel. And the Bible says in verse 10, and Samuel said, Speak Lord for your servant hears. Then the Lord gave him this amazing prophecy and said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Verse 12, and on that day, I will fulfill against the priest, against Eli, all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end verse 13 and I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew about because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them so let me pause at this point and tell you what I think let me let me just say this i think it confirms it in the bible if you as a parent see your children doing stuff Acting outside of right behavior or something that is blasphemous or something that is that is truly outside of the will of God. It is your job to say something. Remember, you are not their friends. You are their parent. Do not be silent. Verse 14. He goes on to say, Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Now he's, he's referring to the specific things that will befall, not just Eli's house, but all of Israel. Number one, the destruction of the sanctuary in Shiloh. Number two, the death of Eli. Number three, The death of both of his sons at the same time. And number four, the capture of the Ark of the Covenant by the Philistines. Now, as one of the last judges to rule before the period of the kings came to ancient Israel, Eli held a a fairly significant role. The Bible says he was sitting at the foot of the doorpost in the sanctuary at Shiloh when Hannah arrived. He saw her apparently mumbling to herself and praying and thought that she was drunk. That goes back to the text that I read at the very beginning, but was soon assured of both her honest motivation uh, because she had a request before the Lord and that she was sober and that he had assumed the leadership after Samson's death. After listening to Hannah's complaint about being barren and that she had a serious need before the Lord, Eli said to her, "Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him." Um this is um this this point kind of rocked me a little bit because here we know God is also at pretty much the same time pronouncing judgment upon Eli's family. Right. Eventually Eli will die and his two sons will die. Right. And his dynasty will be cut off. Right. But at the same time, God is honoring. Come on now. God is honoring what Eli has told Hannah. That God will grant her petition. And the Bible says in verse 18, she said, let your servant fight favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. First Samuel chapter number one, verses 17 and 18. Her face was no longer sad. I smiled when I read that subsequently after Elkanah and Hannah returned from the temple on the Sabbath. He and his wife became intimate, and shortly after that, Hannah became pregnant, and then later gave birth to Samuel. The Bible says she praised God for his mercy His mercy and his faithfulness in chapter two, which records her famous uh, song of praise. This song of praise is recited on the first day of the Jewish uh, New Year, which is called Rosh Hashanah, and her, her praise is observed Even today, if you were to to observe with one of your Jewish friends, the Rosh Hashanah uh, first day of the Jewish New Year, you will hear Hannah's prayer uh, recited. When Hannah prayed, she said, quote, My heart exalts the Lord my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, speaking of Penina, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, she says. There is no rock like our God, verse three, no more so very proudly. Talk no more, so very proudly, speaking of Penina. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, speaking of Penina. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bowels of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger, referring to herself. The barren has borne seven. So so Hannah had seven kids after this, come on now. Did y'all know that? She says, but she who has many children, speaking of Penina, is sad, is forlorn, because the Lord kills and brings to life. Many of you might not have known this, but when Hannah had her children, the Lord took away Penina's children. She goes on to say, The Lord kills and bring to life. He brings down the shoal and raise up. Verse 7, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful once, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall man prevail. Verse 10 The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. If you have not saved that in your if you have not saved that in your Bible, highlighted it, put asterisks and, you know, quotes around it, please do. Please do. That is Hannah's prayer. And that prayer, again, or that praise is recited every year at the Jewish New Year at Rosh Hashanah, even to this day. It's, it's, it's a tough situation, but it shows that God's listening to us, right? God's hearing our prayers and he's responding. And back in this day, you know, the Lord was swifter to respond. Nowadays, he's he's slow to react. He's slow to respond. That doesn't mean he's not gonna, but he's slower now, I believe, than he was in Old Testament type. Verse 11, then Elkanah went home to Ramah and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. After the child was weaned, she left him at the temple in Eli's care. Now, it was not uncommon for children to be brought to the temple and given into the care of a priest, so that they would be trained in the word of God and in the practices and rituals of the temple. According to 1 Samuel chapter number 1 and verse 20, Hannah named Samuel to commemorate her prayers to God for a child. And so she called his name Samuel, Samuel, if you know anything about the Hebrew, whenever there is an L at the name of anything, it refers to God. And she says, because I have asked him of the Lord and the Lord responded from his appearance, from the appearance of this name rendered in the Hebrew appear to be constructed from two words, Samuel and El. Samu and El, meaning God has set or God has placed. And the meaning is relating to the idea that God has placed a child in Hannah's womb or has set a child in Hannah's womb. The Hebrew also is related in the Akkadian language, which could also mean I have asked or borrowed him from God. I have asked and have borrowed him from God. When Samuel responded, the Lord, uh, he told him that uh, the wickedness of Eli's sons, and I can't even enumerate all the foolishness that they were doing, but when Samuel responded to the Lord, he told him that the wickedness of Eli's sons had resulted in their dynasty being condemned To destruction. So in the morning, Samuel was hesitant about reporting this very negative, you know, uh, report to Eli. So Eli cornered him and asked him to honestly recount to him what he had been told by the Lord. And upon receiving the communication, Eli merely said, to Samuel. Well, the Lord is going to do what seems right unto him. The Bible says Samuel grew up and in all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, which means from north to south, all came to know that Samuel was a trustworthy prophet of the Lord. And, and one theologian, Donald Spence Jones commented that quote, the minds of all the people were thus, Gradually prepared when the right moment came to acknowledge Samuel, not as a boy only, but as a God sent prophet and chieftain. (laughs) During Samuel's youth at Shiloh, the Philistines inflicted a decisive defeat against the Israelites at Eben Ezer or Eben Ezer and placed them under Philistine control, and took the Ark of the Covenant for themselves. The Ark of the Covenant was, it looked very valuable. It was overlaid with gold. The Bible says that it was made of shittim wood, overlaid with gold. Very beautiful. So, you know, if you, got, if you got taken over by another tribe, that's the first thing they're going to take. So in this case, the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant for themselves. Upon hearing the news of the capture of the Ark of the Covenant and the death of his sons, Eli became overwhelmed, collapsed, and fell off his high high stool, his place where he had been sitting, and broke his neck. So Eli died. All right. That was a a notice saying that we have got 15 minutes. Just to give you context. When the Philistines had been in possession of the ark for seven months, it was there. They had been visited with many calamities and misfortunes. So they decided to return the ark back to the Israelites. And if you remember the story, they they kind of put the Ark on a donkey and pointed the donkey towards, uh, towards Israel. Uh, According to Bruce Birch, Samuel was a key figure in keeping the Israelites' heritage and identity alive during Israel's defeat and occupation by the Philistines. It may have been possible and necessary for Samuel to exercise authority in roles that would normally not converge in a single individual because he was not only a prophet, he served as the priest, as a judge, And as a general in the army. After 20 years of oppression, Samuel, who had gained national prominence by this time as a prophet in 1 Samuel 3 and 20, you'll read that. The Bible says he summoned all the people of Israel to Mizpah to lead them against the Philistine army. The Philistines, having marched to Mizpah to attack the newly amassed Israelite army, were soundly defeated and they fled in terror. The retreating Philistine army was then slaughtered by the Israelites. The text then states that Samuel erected a large stone at the battle site as a memorial, and there afterwards ensued a long period of peace in Israel. So now Samuel is also a military leader, in addition to all all of his other uh, accomplishments. Also, Samuel served as, as you will find out, the kingmaker. He initially appointed his two sons, Joel and Abijah, as his successors. However, just like Eli's sons, Samuel's sons proved unworthy. The Israelites rejected them because they were naughty. Uh, the cause of the external threat from other tribes, as such as the Philistines, the tribal leaders around them, They decided that there was need for a more unified leadership in all of Israel. So they went to Samuel and demanded for him to appoint them a king so that they could quote, listen to this language, be like the other nations around them. Samuel interpreted this as a personal rejection of God as their leader. And at first, he was reluctant to oblige this request until he was reassured by God that he should go ahead and do what they ask. However, he warned the people of the potential negative consequences of such a decision. When Saul and his servants were searching, for example, for his father's lost donkeys, the servants suggested that, hey, you know who lives around here? Is that prophet prophet Samuel? and that Saul should consult Samuel. Samuel immediately recognized upon looking at Saul that he would be the future king of Israel. The Bible also tells us that Saul was tall and handsome. He was head and shoulders standing above everybody else. And although Saul did manifest some personality quirks and some real issues, Samuel eventually anointed him to be Israel's first king. Just before his retirement, Samuel gathered the people to an assembly at Gilgal uh, to to deliver his farewell speech in which he emphasized how prophets and judges were more important than kings. And that kings, watch this, should be held to an account and that the people should never fall into the worship of idols such as Ashtarash and Baal. Samuel promised God uh, that God would subject the people to foreign invaders should they disobey you can read this in first Kings 11 verse 5 and verse 33, 2 Kings 23 verse 13 uh, these all highlight that the Israelites later fell into Asherash worship as was prophesied by Samuel as king Saul made two terrible mistakes which caused Samuel to lose faith in him the first of which was when Saul was preparing to fight in a battle against the Philistines at Michmash, Samuel denounced him sharply for proceeding with the pre-battle sacrifice. This is a job that was only uh, reserved for the priest to perform. But Saul couldn't wait. He could not wait for Samuel was late in coming. He was overdue to arrive. So he went ahead Saul did, went ahead and performed the burnt offering sacrifice himself. So when Samuel finally arrived and saw what he had done, Samuel said, dude, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord. I'm I'm reading from um, Samuel 13 verses 8 through 14. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord, your God, with which the Lord commanded you for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you, Saul, have not kept the word the Lord had commanded you. That was his first mistake. He foolishly ran and operated in the office of a priest to offer a sacrifice to see how the war would end or the battle would end instead of waiting for the anointed priest Samuel to do that job. The second major mistake that Saul made was that Samuel had directed Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites in fulfillment of the commandment that the Lord had given them in Deuteronomy 25, verse 17 through 19. I'll read that for you. It says, quote, remember that Amalek, what Amalek did to you on the way when you were coming out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God, speaking of Amalek. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all of your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord is going to give you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out of memory all of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget this. Because of Saul's disobedience, Samuel prophesied that Saul's rule would see no dynastic succession in fact his rule would end prematurely so that was the second giant mistake that saul made he did not kill all the amalekites now you remember this story right during the campaign against the amalekites uh king saul spared the best for himself. He spared uh, King Agag of the Amalekites and the best of the livestock. He, He told Samuel that he had spared the choices of the sheep and the oxen because he had intended to sacrifice that livestock to the Lord. That was a direct violation of what the Lord had commanded because the Lord commanded him to utterly destroy all that they have. Spare them not, slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, oxen and sheep, camel and ass. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 15, 3. So Samuel confronted Saul for his disobedience and told him that God made him king and for sure God can unmake him king. And then Samuel went and executed King Agag. Saul never saw Samuel alive again after this. Samuel then proceeded uh, to the house of Jesse, David's father, in Bethlehem, and secretly anointed David as the next king. He would later provide sanctuary for David when when David was running from Saul uh, to seek refuge. All right, let me let me stop there. I I, I have a, another page and a half of notes, but I'm gonna I'm gonna stop there. Um, And maybe I'll finish it next week. Um, But I wanted to just give you context. Um, Saul disobeyed by allowing Agag to remain alive. He also spared the best of the sheep and the oxen and fatted calves. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for, for he has turned back from following me. And has not performed my commandments and samuel was angry the bible says that he cried to the lord all night so by this time saul's reign is in decline then the lord again asked samuel once again to go to the house of jesse to find the next king all right, let me stop. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you'll help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area,